Well, this morning I'm finishing up a sermon series that I started a couple months ago called Strength and Weakness, essentially going through the second, um, second the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, unfamiliar with 2 Corinthians, it was a letter written by the Apostle Paul, one of the leaders in the early church. And he wrote it to a church in Corinth, which was part of ancient Greece, part of the Roman Empire. It was a church he started around the year 50 A.D., and after he built up the church, he moved on to start other churches. And then as he had opportunity, he would visit them. And as issues arose, he would send them letters to remind them of the gospel, to confront whatever issues were arising. And Second Corinthians is the second letter that we have uh, in the Bible that he wrote. And we're going to be finishing up going through chapter 12, verses 14 uh, to 13, verse 14 this morning. Now, if you have been a part of this series, you know that one of the main things that was happening was that there were false teachers who had come into the midst of the Corinthian church, and they were spreading all kinds of slander about Paul and put him in a very difficult situation because he had to write these letters to defend himself without getting defensive. He needed to expose these false teachers without sounding petty and jealous, and he needed to try to win back the affection of these people that he loved so much without pushing them away or offending them. It was a very difficult task that he had. And so uh, as we finish up, what I'm going to do this morning is kind of give a very brief summary of this last section and then use this to give us an overview of the whole letter, remind us of what he has shared. So let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14 to chapter 13, verse 14. Now, I am ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And so I will gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent you? I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not act in the same spirit and follow the same course? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We've been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, And you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time, and I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, and yet he lives by God's power. And likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him to serve you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test? And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. 
Not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is for your perfection. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind and live at peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. Father, we do ask that you would open our ears and open our hearts to hear what you have to say through your word, to take it in to our hearts, to be transformed by it, to become more like you. Lord, we know that in our own strength, we don't have the power to do any of that. We need your Holy Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us. And so please, we pray, God, to apply these words to our hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I'm essentially going to do like a one-minute summary of this passage and then use it to review the whole letter of 2 Corinthians. So uh, Paul begins this section. He begins this section basically by comparing his relationship to them, uh, to the relationship of a father to children. And he has to do that because in Corinth in those days, the typical kind of relationship like this was one of a patron to a client uh, or, or a patron to clients, and they would have expected that they would pay Paul and Paul would perform services for them. And I think that's one of the reasons why all along he's been saying, I'm not taking any money from you. I don't want to confuse these relationships. The relationship that I have with you is like the relationship of a father to children. And like a parent with children, you don't have to save up for me. You don't need to give me anything. I will gladly pour out all I have for you because I am a parent and that's what I do. He says, in return, I don't want your money. I don't want your possessions. I want your heart. I want your heart. Just as I am giving myself to you, I want you to give your heart to me. And he says, the reason I'm writing these harsh letters, these confrontational letters, is because when I come to you, I don't want to have to be harsh with you. I want to enjoy my time with you. And so I write these harsh letters because I'm afraid if I don't, I'm going to show up and I'm going to have to take care of all these issues that are going on in your church. And so that's why I am basically... I'm sending you these letters so that hopefully when I arrive, we'll have a good time together. The verses I really want to focus on this morning are verses 5 through 6, where he says this in chapter 13. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. So remember, there were false teachers who had shown up in Corinth and they were slandering Paul and they were trying to convince the Corinthians that he was not a genuine apostle. They were saying, because look at Paul's life. Look at all the suffering that's going on in his life. If he were a genuine apostle, a genuine follower, a genuine man of God, do you really think God would allow him to go through such suffering? A man of God should experience promotion and favor and increase and blessing and all of those things, right? That's what the man of God should experience, but Paul isn't experiencing any of those things. And so these false teachers are saying, look to us, you know, we are the ones 
who are elevated and we're the ones who are powerful and, and impressive and all of that. Don't look to Paul. And the Corinthians were being swayed by that. And so Paul, who's had his apostleship questioned, is now turning the tables and questioning their faith and saying, listen, before I come, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves to see if you know God. Test yourselves to see if your life is in line with Jesus. Take the mirror, hold it up to yourself, and look at the way you're living. Look at what you're believing. Examine yourself. Are you in the faith? Are you truly living and believing in line with the gospel? Maybe you've heard the old question, if someone were to put you on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Examine yourselves. So as Paul asked them to examine themselves, that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to use this, these verses basically to look back at 2 Corinthians and look at, as we look back at the letter, what has Paul said over this letter about what it means to be in the faith? How are we supposed to examine ourselves? What's the mirror that God is using in 2 Corinthians to examine your life and whether you are in the faith or not? I feel like it's one of those sitcoms, you know, the episode where they do like the flashbacks. That's what it feels like. We're going to be doing a lot of flashbacks through 2 Corinthians this morning. So three things in particular. Uh, you're going to know that you are in the faith if what? First of all, if you are trusting the true gospel and you are reconciled to God. Reconciled to God. That's a verse, a word that comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 14 to 20. On this passage, of all the passages I think in this letter, it just really captures the heart of the gospel, of the Christian message. He says this, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. Okay. So that section right there, that is the kind of passage that you would do well to read and meditate on and understand and take into your heart because there is so much packed into those verses about what this Christian message is all about. He uses the word reconciliation. He summarizes the gospel in one word in this passage, reconciliation. He says, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We plead with others to be reconciled with God. God has reconciled us to him in Christ. 
Reconciliation, if you're unfamiliar with that word, I could define it as this. Reconciliation is the restoration of the relationship between individuals or between a person and God. It's a change from enmity, which is opposition or hostility, to friendship. What's the implication of this definition? What's the implication of Paul using the word reconciliation? The implication is that we, on our own, are not right with God. That just by virtue of being born into this world, just by virtue of being born into a Christian family, none of that makes you right with God. There's a need, he's saying, for reconciliation. There's a need for the enmity and the opposition and the hostility to be put aside and for there to be restoration of a relationship. He says that's the gospel message, that we are separated from a holy God by our sin, and there's a need in some way for us to be made right with God. How is that going to happen? He's saying unless... uh, even if you're not aware of it, he's saying you're a person in rebellion against God, that you're not right with him on your own. There's a need for someone to intervene and make you right with him. Again, this isn't just the words of Paul. Listen to Jesus in one of the most famous and well-known passages. For God so loved the world, John 3, 16, 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Okay, everyone, a lot of people know that verse, but then he goes on to say this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So this is Jesus talking, Jesus, you know, the, the, one, the man of love, meek and mild Jesus, all of that. And he's coming out and saying this great, thing that God has made a way for you to be right with him and it's through Jesus believing in him but then he goes on to say if you don't he says you stand condemned harsh words but he's echoing what Paul says here that on our own we're not right with God and there's a need for reconciliation there's a need for someone to intervene and make us right with God and that is Jesus Again, as he said in 2 Corinthians 5.21 there, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Can you all read that with me right now? Let's read this together. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Read it one more time. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How much power and truth is in that one verse? That here we are, and here's the holy God, and here's our sin that has separated us from him, and how are we going to get from here to there? It's not going to be by our own good works and by our own efforts. But Paul declares here that God made him who had no sin, that is Jesus, to be sin for us, to die on the cross and to take our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him we might be made right with God. The biblical word for this is justification, which is this. It's the legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight good way of thinking the word righteous is to define it as right-related. 
The one who's righteous is the one who's in a right relationship with God. And so he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He took our sin. He gave us his righteousness. That's justification. That's God as judge declaring us not guilty. But justifying us is not the only thing that he did. It's not the only thing in that passage in 2 Corinthians 5. He also says this, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. This reconciliation that he did was to adopt us into his family as children of God. Adoption is the act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. This is not just God as judge because a judge can declare you not guilty, but he doesn't necessarily take you home with him after declaring you not guilty into his family. But God is not just the judge. He's a father. He declares you not guilty, and then he welcomes you in as his beloved child. That's adoption. Reconciliation, not just into relationship, but into a relationship as a child to a father. Think of John chapter 1, 12 through 13. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, that's Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Remember what I said, you're not right with God by the virtue of your birth, even by being born into a Christian family, but by being born of God, by being born again, by being born from above, by being given rebirth. You come into God's family as his beloved child. But that's not all he does, not just justification and adoption. The third one was this. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And the biblical word for this is regeneration. It's the act of God by which he imparts spiritual, eternal life to us. This is God as the heart surgeon. Not just forgiving you as judge, not just bringing you in as a father, bringing in a child, but then as heart surgeon, replacing your heart of stone that cannot respond to him with a heart of flesh, giving you spiritual sight, spiritual vision, spiritual life, putting his Holy Spirit inside of you that you might know him. Read Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 5. Paul said this, As for you, you were dead. Hear that? You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But... Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Notice the contrast in this passage. It's not you once were bad, and now you are good. You once were ignorant, and now you're enlightened. The contrast is you once were dead, and now you're alive. You once were spiritually dead, and now you are spiritually alive. That's regeneration. That is God coming into our lives, putting his Holy Spirit in us and giving us spiritual life. Whereas once we did not know God, this was not an exciting book to read. We had no desire to worship, to be with other Christians. All of a sudden, God puts his Holy Spirit and this comes alive. And he comes alive. And this comes alive. And there becomes this desire to know him and worship him and follow him. There's a sensitivity to him, a sensitivity to sin, all these things that come as a result of putting his Holy Spirit inside of us. 
We were spiritually dead, and now we are alive. Some of you are saying amen to that, and you look back at your life and you say, amen, I know when that happened. And some of you have no idea what I am talking about. And can I please encourage you, before you leave this room, if you are in that second camp, before you leave this church, ask God to give you his Holy Spirit. Ask God to forgive you and ask God to come into your life to give you spiritual life, to regenerate your heart. Because this is some of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. Remember, he said this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. It's a frightening passage, but he says this, the God of this age, which refers to Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He's saying if you don't believe and those in your life who don't believe, it's not just that they don't get it logically. It's not just that they're, you know, rejecting it because they're bad people or something like that. There's something spiritual going on. If there is an enemy who does not want them to know God and he has blinded their minds, blinded their eyes, that they cannot see God. This is why it's a spiritual work. As much as we might try to persuade people into the kingdom, share testimonies, share about all of these things. In the end, it's a spiritual work of God that he needs to do because their minds have been blinded by the enemy. In chapter 3, he put it this way, even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul's saying, there are many people out there who do not believe the gospel, who do not know God. And it's because their minds have been blinded by the enemy. There's a veil covering their hearts. They cannot see the glory of the gospel This is why prayer is so important. Do you understand? That you can come up with the most perfect evangelistic techniques. You could come to a point where you can share your testimony perfectly, share the gospel perfectly, and in the end, it still might not make any difference without prayer. Because this is a spiritual work. If you know God and came to faith, it, is a, it was a spiritual work that God revealed himself to you, lifted the veil, helped you to see him and know him, brought you spiritual life. And if he's going to do it in the lives of those that you love, it has to be a spiritual work. And you are going to have to pray and pray and pray and intercede and ask God to please lift the veil, to please help them to see the glory of the gospel. Throughout this passage, Paul is just so burdened for the Corinthians and how they're being deceived by these false teachers. He says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. These are people who know God, who are in a right relationship, but they're still being deceived. 
And my prayer for you as well is not only that those of you who don't know him would stay here until you know him, stay here and cry out to God to reveal himself to you until you have his Holy Spirit, please. But those of you who know him would not be swayed and led astray by false gospels, by false spirits, by false Jesus is that you would not be led astray by all the false messages that are out there pulling you away from the one true God. So that's the first test. Again, I'm asking you to put up a mirror as we look back at 2 Corinthians, to hold a mirror up and say, examine yourself. Are you in the faith? The first most important thing is this. Do you know God? Are you trusting the true gospel? Are you reconciled to him? Do you have the Holy Spirit inside of you? But passing the test is not just a matter of what you believe. It's also how you're living. Are you walking in sacrificial love? And this one is not a black and white, either or kind of question, right? It's not like, yes, I am, or no, I'm not. I mean, this is a, this is a whole continuum from the self-centeredness that we had when we first came to faith, where everything was about us, to Jesus, who was willing to love us all the way to death on the cross, I'm here to tell you this morning, as we look back at 2 Corinthians, that the one who has truly been regenerated, the one who has the Holy Spirit in them, the one whose eyes are on Jesus and is desiring to follow him, is going to live a life of sacrificial love. One of the hallmarks of this letter was Paul referring to his suffering, right? Again and again, he was cataloging all the ways that he was suffering, not just, you know, wow, I've had a really hard life, but it was suffering in service to the gospel, suffering in service to them, suffering in service to the churches, that he was willing to undergo anything out of his love for his children, his spiritual children. He was willing to sacrifice anything for them. And again, it grieved them so much because they looked at it and they said, you know what, Paul doesn't look like a really, you know, a man of God. Look at all his suffering. And he's like, you're missing the whole gospel. The gospel is a, the story of the sacrificial love of God who died on the cross for you. And if you are going to follow in his footsteps, it's going to mean sacrificial love. And for you to look at my life of suffering and say that somehow I am not a man of God because I'm suffering I'm afraid you don't even get the gospel. So he said this in 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 6. He said, Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance and troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love. Again, Hold the mirror up to your life today. Hold this mirror and test yourself. Examine yourself. Are you in the faith? Not just do you believe the right things, but are you living in a way that reflects Jesus in sacrificial love? Because Paul wasn't saying, you know, woe is me. Just look at me and how much I'm suffering. He's saying, no, it is in my suffering that Christ is magnified. It is in my sacrificial love for you that Christ's power is made perfect. Remember these verses from 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. 
we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. How many times did he say this? I am willing to weaken myself so that you might be strong. I am willing to suffer that you might be made strong. That you might be established. I'm willing to pour out my life that you might be filled up with the Spirit. Think about the relationships you have in your life. Think about the significant others in your life. God is calling you to display this kind of sacrificial love because God in Jesus Christ has poured out himself for you and everything that you need all the way to death on the cross for you, to save you, to empower you and strengthen you. And now he calls you to go and do likewise, to be filled up by his spirit that you might pour out and sacrificial love for others. That is what it means to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, is to love sacrificially. Those of you who are doing that, and I look around this room, and I know that some of you are doing that very much. God bless you. The Father is pleased with you because you are walking in his footsteps. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, remember this from last week. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Hold up that mirror to yourself this morning. Does your life display sacrificial love in a way that points to Jesus? Or is it completely self-centered? Is it more about you? Is your life more about what others can do for you, how others can serve you and meet your needs? Test yourselves, examine yourselves, not just in what you believe, but in how you are living and is your life reflecting the sacrificial love of Christ? Because I'm telling you, the one who is in Christ labors in prayer for others is willing to give up money and material goods for others, lays down their own dreams and ambitions for others, gives up their time and their energy to serve others, is willing to suffer for others, trusting that God's power will be made perfect in their weakness and that through this kind of sacrificial love that God can accomplish something that is impossible through our own self-centeredness. That somehow in our weakness, we become conduits of his power to strengthen others. Remember, this is how the letter started. He said, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. 
For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. He's saying, even though I went through all this terrible suffering in my life, I know that as God has comforted me, now he has equipped me to bring his comfort to others as they suffer. I have become a conduit for his power and his strength and his grace to minister that to others. Last thing is this. You are in the faith if you are living a holy life with your eyes set on eternal things. Holiness means you're set apart for God's use. You're not so caught up in the things of this world that you're of no earthly good, no, no good for God. Remember this from 2 Corinthians 6. He said, this includes the partnerships you make in your life. He said, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what can righteousness, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, which is another name for Satan? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. Test yourself, examine yourself, see if you were in the faith, not just what you believe, but how you are living. Is your life one of sacrificial love? And are you living a life that is pursuing holiness, godliness? Not entering into partnerships with people and things and organizations and all sorts of things that just want to pull you away from God, pull you away from being useful to him. This involves what you put in your body and your spirit. He says this, Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Examine yourself today. Who and what are you partnering with? What are you allowing to influence you? What are the inputs in your life? What are the things that are coming in and shaping you? Physically, emotionally, spiritually. Test yourself, examine yourself to see if you are walking in the faith like Jesus did, pursuing holiness and godliness. He's calling you not just to holiness, but to focus your eyes on the things that matter eternally, to not spend your life living for things that in the end will not matter. Remember these verses, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Where does he say fix your eyes? Fix your eyes on what is unseen. I'm not going to live and worry about the things of this world, even if it means I suffer again and again and again. I'm not fixing my eyes on that. I'm not worried about my worldly comfort. I'm worried about God. I'm worried about Jesus. I'm worried about living for him. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7 through 10, we live by faith and not by sight. 
We are confident, I say, and we'd prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And so we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while on the body, whether good or bad. The reason we're doing this pop quiz today is because the test is coming at the end of your life, right? The reason we're pausing right now in the middle of your life to say, test yourself, examine yourself, is because one day the final test will be here. And you will be standing before God. And you will be before the judgment seat. And it says, according to these verses, that he will be testing you for what you did in this life. And going back to point one, we know the only way that we're right with God is because Jesus died for our sins. And as we put our faith in him, we're justified, declared righteous, not guilty. Amen? I'm not declaring that you are saved by your works because you're not. You're saved by grace, by trusting in him. However, what you do in this world matters eternally. On that day, you're going to stand before God. Your world, your life is going to be evaluated how you lived. This is why Paul says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. I do not want you on that day to stand before God. And as you look back at your life, you look back and you say, I wasted so much time. I wasted so much money. I wasted so much energy on things that in the end were useless, were eternally insignificant. I'm trying to prevent you from that because there is a final test. And I'm trying to prevent you from the anguish of that day of looking back and saying, I had one life to live and I wasted it on things that just don't matter eternally. Test yourself and examine yourself today. Yes, first of all, do you know him? Is his Holy Spirit in you? But secondly, if he is, then what are you living for? What are you spending your life on? What are you spending your time, your money, your energy on? The standard here is Jesus. It's not me. It's not anyone in this world. It's not even your own standards. The standard by which we're measuring ourselves is Jesus. Test yourself. How do you measure up to him? Examine yourself to see if you are in the faith, if you are walking in sacrificial love, in holiness, setting your mind on eternal things. Can I suggest something? Get alone with God sometime today, sometime this week. Please, get out a journal or talk out loud. Figure out a way to evaluate this. This is a serious question, right? I mean, again, there is a final exam on that day where your life is going to be evaluated and what we're doing today is the pop quiz to see how you're doing and preparing for that final exam. Test yourself. Hold up the mirror. 
Does your life reflect Jesus in sacrificial love? Does your life reflect Jesus in holiness, in pursuing godliness? Does your life reflect Jesus in that you're not living for the things of this world, but you are living for him and for things that are eternal? Set aside time this day, this week, and get alone with God and ask yourself this question and review and evaluate your life. And then change accordingly. Live for the things that matter eternally. If you do not know God, can I encourage you to pray this with me? If you don't even know if you're in the faith, if you don't even know if you've hit step one yet, here's something you can pray. And the magic is not in the word. It's not that these are magic words, but it is in a heart that desires to know him. Let me pray. Let's pray with me if if you don't know him. Father, I confess to you that I am a sinner, a rebel against a holy God, and that I am deserving of eternal separation from you. But I believe that Jesus died for me, that you put my sins on him, that you offer me his righteousness, a right relationship with you, not because of my good works, but because of his loving sacrifice. I believe that in you is found eternal life, life to the full. Today I turn from my sinful, self-centered way of life, and I trust in you as my Savior and Lord, And commit my life to you. Open my heart that I might see and know you and live for you. Amen.